0: Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I'm Laura McClaus-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. Two months ago, I sat down with the legendary graphic artist Sandy DeVore. Though you might not recognize his name, you would know his work. As a titles designer, he created the opening credits for television shows that helped shape American culture. A few examples include The Partridge Family, The Waltons, and The Young and the Restless. By developing the visual language of TV and film credits in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, Sandy's work helped create the lens through which we see America in those decades. Originally from Chicago, Sandy thought of art as a pastime growing up and went to college for pre-med, though a zoology teacher swiftly recommended a change of majors when he saw his anatomical drawings. Highly creative and original, Sandy found the tight structures of art school and the Chicago advertising world of the 1950s too confining, and he escaped to L.A. to pursue acting. I talk a lot in these intros about the decisions we make and how those choices shape our lives, how my interviewees use their passions to mold lives and careers loaded with meaning and intention. Sometimes choices are made for people, and it's about learning to roll with the punches and use those sudden opportunities to our best advantage. This is definitely true of Sandy. After a failed career in acting, a pickup baseball game changed his life. From poverty and depression to the most talked about artist in Hollywood within a couple of weeks, It's an overnight success story, built on the years of toil and stress he endured beforehand. As Sandy discusses in this conversation, the highly coveted back pages of The Hollywood Reporter and Variety were reserved for his vibrantly illustrated ads for many years. There he would illustrate the most important news in Hollywood. Paid for by the top agencies in town, these ads introduced new signings, congratulated clients on awards, advertised special projects and concerts. His first ad was for Judy Garland. He went on to illustrate ads for every megastar in entertainment. Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Steve McQueen, Faye Dunaway, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, and on and on. This work led to special projects, like designing the now iconic Red Solo Cup, album covers, corporate logos, and then movie and television credits. Beginning with the special title art of the 1968 film Wild in the Streets, DeVore has designed title sequences for films including Skidoo, Three in the Attic, Desad, the Dunwich Horror, Blackula, and its sequel, Scream, Blackula, Scream, as well as television series including Skag, Falcon Crest, and Knots Landing. In 1987, he won the Emmy for Outstanding Graphic and Title Design for his work on the Carol Burnett TV special, Carol, Carl, Whoopi, and Robin, featuring comedy greats Carol Burnett, Whoopi Goldberg, Carl Reiner, and Robin Williams. What stands out about all of his work is the creativity and sheer breadth of different media and styles. A skilled draftsman, he easily moved from detailed graphite and ink portraiture to graphic, abstract forms, cute cartoons, and bright splashes of paint. He approached creating hundreds of back pages a year as his own personal art show, an opportunity to try new things, push the boundaries of advertising, and show off his skills in a multitude of different media to all the power players in entertainment. While this interview offers a compelling rags-to-riches story, punctuated by many amusing and interesting behind-the-scenes anecdotes about famous stars in the Hollywood machine, It's also an intimate look at what happens when taste and technology changes and leaves behind the highly skilled and highly celebrated. Sandy openly shares about how the entry of computers into design in the early 1990s changed everything for him. The traditional ways of approaching graphics became unpopular and unwanted almost overnight, effectively ending his career. What do you do when you're still capable but no one wants your work? There's definitely a certain pathos to this conversation. As he enters the last part of his life, Sandy is rightly melancholy as he looks back over the heights he scaled and the close friends and family he's lost. We touch on all aspects of his life, including loneliness and creativity in the face of depression. It's a long conversation, but worthwhile and poignant. After you have finished listening, I highly recommend heading to our website, ladyworld.tv, to view clips of many of his films and TV credits, as well as a slideshow of his ads. The products of a highly creative and engaging mind that are made all the more intriguing after delving deep into his history and psyche in this conversation. Enjoy. Thank you so much for sitting down with me, talking, agreeing to meet.
1: It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to it because you you called me, it's been a while. Yeah. And when somebody calls me and tells me that they've been following my life and my work, that's not something that I take for granted. So, I have been looking forward to meeting you, sort of wondering what you found so interesting.
0: I'm not even sure how I originally became aware of your work. You know, sort of start putting together the dots that you've done, The Partridge Family and The Waltons, and, and then starting to realize that you've done a lot of the movies that I'd seen. which was really impressed by the sort of wide breadth of your work and the creativity, and wanted to come talk to you about your career and your creative process and
1: life, you know. Well, my my father was very successful. He was a very strong and admirable man, and so I grew the way I grew up in Chicago, on the west side of Chicago. Most young people, most young guys, felt the same. What am I going to do in my life? Most of the people who are appreciated are either lawyers or doctors or mob guys. (laughs) But the last thing I ever thought would be my thing was being an artist because nobody was an artist and the fact that I would lie on the dining room floor and draw pictures in a tablet, one tablet that my mom got for me. I don't have an artsy story and a beginning like growing up around artists or anything. The most good it ever did me as a kid was I used to get excellence and superiors on my report card in art but I got it in music and other, and history and other things. The only thing I'm completely incapable of understanding is mathematics. It just never permeated. So, But the art was was just something that I could sort of do, but I never thought that it was going to give me the kind of ability to provide and to pay and to earn like I saw my father and my uncles and the men of that time do. I never considered that. But since it was the only thing I seemed to be able to do fairly easily, I went to school. When I got out of high school, I went down to the University of Illinois because then everybody was entitled to a state education at, at the state mm-hmm. university. And so I went into the art school. No, as a matter of fact, I went into pre-med. I enrolled in pre-med because I figured the only guy in my, in our family, the only uncle that ever really people got excited about was the youngest one, Sonny, who became a doctor. That was the ultimate accomplishment in those days, doctor or lawyer, you know. And so I wasn't doing very well. I had no mind for chemistry and things like that. But in the zoology class, we had an assignment to draw the muscles and the bones of the body. When I did that, the zoology, zoology teacher found me in this big auditorium with all these students. And he brought my drawings to me and he said, did you do these? Are you Sanford DeBoer?" I said, yes. He says, well then you don't belong here. You go over to the art school and you go to the dean of the art school and you tell them that I sent you and you show them these. So I did that and I entered the art school and I flunked out because one of the requirements was hygiene. One, a one-hour course in hygiene. And I thought to myself, I know how to wash my hands and." I know how to take a shower. I would have had to have walked from my fraternity house where I was pledging. I was pledging the Sammy house signal from you. Most of the guys I knew were from high school, you know, the few that went downstate were pledging there. And I figured I didn't want to walk across the entire campus to a building, an old biology building, to take a one-hour unit hygiene class so they wouldn't give me grades because I was not fulfilling the requirement. So my father drove down there and talked to the dean, got me back in, but it was useless because the same thing happened the second semester with trying to learn French because it was the only language course that still had an opening, and I couldn't get that at all. So disillusioned, I go back to Chicago and I end up enrolling in an art school called the American Academy of Art. It was on one floor, on a building downtown, right next to the overhead rail, so, so tracks, the loop mm-hmm. tracks. It was in an office building. That's where I got turned around. Something there turned me around. That piece of art over there, that watercolor of the houses and boats. And that was the first thing I did over there. And I was instructed by a wonderful lady. I believe her name was Mrs. Brown. And she seemed to take a liking to me. Or maybe not a liking, but she seemed to, she would come around and stop behind me. And it just seemed like I appreciated what was going on there. I appreciated... It it felt good. And then I did that little project down there, which was, you took some Indie ink and dropped it on some water, and when it dried, if you saw a vision of something in it, then you continued on with those old Croquille pens, Mm -hmm. not the ones you buy in our stores today for, you know, you had to keep dipping. And I did that. Those two, drawings, because it was like a Rorschach, and that's what I saw in it. And I got an A. I got an A. I got a good mark on it. And it was the first time I started to have some faith in the fact that, you know, that maybe something good could come of all this. After spending a year or a year and a half at the American Academy of Art and sort of catching on, I went back to Illinois because my buddies were in the fraternity house. I wanted to be made a member because now I could go back with Mm transferable units and my grades were up. I spent until 56 there so I could end up with my buddies and my pledge brothers. When they all finished and graduated, it was over with, we left. Went back to Chicago and the first job that I got was an apprentice at Leo Burnett, an apprentice in those days. Cut mats, and ran errands, and cleaned things up. And I had no desire to do that. What I wanted to do was, since they represented everything from Marlboro to Kellogg's, to I mean, every they 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 were the biggest and the newest and most contemporary creatively. So, I had a little cubicle, and. Uh, I would do drawings for Pillsbury and ads, and for like El Monte pineapple. I would make the pineapple into a big one-wheel bicycle because it was it was Mexican pineapple. A guy with sombrero driving the wheel made made out of a pineapple. Rock. I mean, and then one night we went to Grant Park to play ball against. J. Walter Thompson. I wasn't bad because as a kid growing up in Chicago, there was no television, there was no computers, there was no texting. You were in the streets or in the park or in the playground playing ball from early morning to late at night on the weekends. They had to drag you in because it got so dark that the ball would hit you in the face you could see it. I mean that's where, the way you lived, playing ball. So I came back after the game, and I saw I had never come back at 8 o'clock at night. I left at 5 or 6 with everybody else and came back in the next morning. But when I went to my cubicle to change from my things I was wearing for the ball game into regular clothes to go back up and go home, I saw all of the ones that I had drawn, for this creative meeting, broken in half and put in a big garbage dump, big round garbage thing. And when I asked the art director for my department, who was the creative guy, and I walked into his office, he was there. I walked in, his face was red. He had already had his martinis for for the night. And I asked him why my stuff was torn in half in a big round garbage thing. And he said because he didn't feel like taking any young bleep bleep hotshot out of art school and making a star out of him. So he was drunk and he was mean. And that was his explanation. And so we sort of got into it and I left Leo Burnett. I did have one person there I admired and remembered all of my life and his name was Andy Armstrong. He was the creative director. He was a strong looking man. You could hear his shoes coming down the hall with that cordovan click on the tile floors. And he always stuck his head into my place and gave me a smile as if reassuring me that what I was doing wasn't gonna fly in the big city where you had to wait 10 or 12 or 15 years to go from assistant to a regular art director. He was sort of looking at me and smiling, and to me, it was giving me support and reassurance, even though I knew the same thing was gonna, that that I wasn't gonna last, because I wasn't material for the way they did things. I had always had something secretly stuck away inside of me. because Some years before, on a Saturday night, my buddies and I went downtown in Chicago to the Staten Lake Theater and somebody had been talking about this new movie that came out that was very very special and unique and so we decided we'd go down and see what it was all about and it was a movie called On the Waterfront and it was starring a newcomer to us because Bogart and William Powell and Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. Those those were the stars that made movies, and every movie you went to see he had one or the other in them. And all of a sudden, they were talking about this new movie. So when I walked out of the theater after seeing On the Waterfront with Brando, I said quietly to myself, I've got to find a way to get out there because what that movie gave off. And what he gave off, even though it was a dramatic role, I identified with. It was frustration and conflict and mood swings and things that other movies had never addressed. So I thought, if that's what's happening out there, even though it's... I didn't stop to think that this was being done dramatically. It got to me as being the way it was out here. And I knew that everything had changed in film. So a few years later, after losing this job at Leo Burnett, which was the top apprentice job that any kid could get, I was a little bit deflated because Chicago is a small town. The atmosphere is a small town. It's big and it's rich and it's... But the mentality is the mentality of the Midwest. You know, don't talk about certain things things that your mind is telling you or moods that you're in if it doesn't go along with what everything that, that had come before nobody wanted to listen to it and people would look the other way stigmas attached to anything different and here I was an artist that was different, I was getting fired I wasn't proud of that it didn't bother me but I wasn't you know, I wasn't proud of it but I had started making a couple of bucks and I drove by a Chevy place one night and told my dad there was a car in the window It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. He says, let's take a ride over and look at it. And it was the 57 Chevrolet with that straight back mm-hmm. fin, which is a classic today. Yeah. And it was sitting on the showroom floor. And my father had saved for me all the $125 checks that I had earned in a year or a year and a half at Leo Burnett. And then, $125 a week, an American kid could live like a prince, and but he saved it. And so I got that car. Long story short, I just couldn't keep it inside anymore. I was walking down Rush Street one night by myself, all my buddies. Had taken, had gotten their pin girls, or the girls they had been with since high school, or their new girlfriends, and everybody couldn't wait to get married. Everybody with the guys I ran with, and used to go out at night to Mister Kelly's and this place and that place and the Scotch Mist. Everybody was was gone. I was driving downtown alone, and one night. It raining, walking down the street in my trench coat. You know, those trench coats that, like Sam Spade used to wear, you know, made you look like a...
2: Detective.
1: Yeah, a detective or stylish. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wasn't a drinker. I didn't care much about drinking. That if I didn't do something, I was going to end up in going from one agency to the next agency and then walking around West Street at night by myself sitting in a bar looking to pitch some cocktail waitress or something like that, and then driving up to West Rogers Park, which was the new neighborhood that everybody had moved to. Because white flight was in dramatic effect during the years of the late 50s. Everything was changing in Chicago. And so my parents decided to leave the neighborhood move up to this new neighborhood where everybody was moving to. I had a girl that I was very close to up there, and I just called her one night, and I said, I'm going to California, you want to take a ride? She says, where are you going? I says, whenever you're ready. And I told my folks, I was going to go to California just to take a look around, just for a couple of weeks, but my parents are very, very smart, and they're very, they're very brave people because most things deep down inside your soul when when all that starts to happen are not things you talk about. People didn't talk about that that stuff. But they knew, they could tell that I was leaving. So she and I got in their 57 Chevy. Maybe a few days later I took my portfolio, I put it in the trunk and uh, drove to California. I was so anxious to get here. I didn't even stop the car in Vegas. The only thing I remember was going at, out of Vegas at the end and seeing this ranch-type motel-looking hotel called The Flamingo. And that was placed at that Siegel's built. that's really started Vegas. I didn't even stop. When I saw Los Angeles skyline coming up through the smog, I saw all these big highways in the sky, but there were no cars on them. So I said, why are they building all these highways? There's no cars on them. These were the freeways that they were building, but there was nobody on them yet because there was nobody here. It was the last frontier. It It was still Southern California with palm trees It wasn't LA yet, at least that's the way I saw it. So for the next four years I tried this and I tried that. I had some people who I made friends with who helped me try to get along. Did you have Uh, any
0: money when you moved?
1: I had $360 that my father had set aside for me that I got in envelopes at my bar mitzvah. My father threw me a great bar mitzvah at the Belden Stratford in Chicago on Lakeshore Drive, beautiful hotel. Bar mitzvahs are really not for the kid. They're for the father and the family to say, It's a tradition, like circumcision. But circumcision, you're not old enough to agree to. It. Or say, hey, I don't want anybody fooling around with that. <laughs> but bar mitzvah, you have to do because it's for your father and mother. He had saved that money, 360 bucks, And so that's what I took to California, $360. But my family had friends I called aunt and uncle. They weren't aunt and uncle, but they were the mother and father of the Johnson brothers. Artie Johnson, who was a very famous comedian who was on that marvelous show and did all that very interesting remember with the helmet mm-hmm. yeah. I see it on television every day they do reruns of it um, what, what was that show I, of course
0: I'm blanking as well
1: okay but yeah. but one of the brothers not Artie mm-hmm. Artie was already doing comedy in New York and this and that one thing He was his son. It was auntie. They were the sons of my mother and father's best friends in their group. And so we called them aunt and uncle. When I got out here, one of them was living in Westwood. And I drove to his place because when I hit downtown, I asked some policeman where I should go. So he asked me where I came from. He asked me where I went to college. He asked me what I did. He asked me what my religion was. He talked to me for like five minutes. And then he said, take this street, Santa Monica, Route 66, keep following it, all the way up Santa Monica, and you'll get to Westwood. And that's where you should try to find a place temporarily. So I looked up Barty Johnson's brother. Oslo Johnson, who ended up, who at the time was writing aviation stuff for Lockheed aircrafters, but he invited my girlfriend, my friend who went with me, Michael Lane was her name, a beautiful name, Michael Lane, and to this day still never forgets a birthday and the phone will ring. Um, she lives in Florida. He let me stay there for a while until. I found my way around. And then I started, and then I met somebody in Beverly Hills because one of my Pledge Brothers had come out here first. He was an eye doctor. And he was also, I also went to high school with him. And he was married to some girl in Beverly Hills, but she had a sister. And he introduced me to the sister. And the sister became my friend and introduced me to all kinds of young people. I still didn't know what I was going to do. I really wanted to get into the movies.
0: As an actor?
1: As an actor. Television was st- in black and white and there were a couple of shows where you could just go in and audition whether you were in the union or not. One of them was Divorce Court. And it was a pretty good show. It was very realistic. I went and auditioned for that and I got the part. I thought it, w- it was a big deal. and Nobody else thought it was a big deal. but. It was my first thing and then I left Westwood and this young friend showed me, this young girl who had become friendly, Beverly, Reese was her name. She showed me a little place on Olympic Boulevard where they had little one room apartments but it was sort of nice. It suited my purpose. It was right on Olympic, right in Beverly Hills there. and I started driving up at night to Sunset Boulevard and there were some coffee houses where you could go and sit and people would come in at night like the actor Warren Oates and Robert Vaughn and Suzanne Plachette and Mike Dante and Nicholson used to come in there and Harry Dean Stanton and everybody would sit down and for 60 cents you could milk a glass of wine. And the marvelous actress, Sally Kellerman, was the waitress. And she had the dirtiest apron I've ever seen because she was always spilling stuff and people were spilling stuff on her. She was working for tips so she could go to acting class. Then I met a girl who, um, simply by accident, because the other place I'd go to after I ran out of money and I was parking. Cars for a while on, Sunset, on La Siena at the restaurants. And minimum wage then was a dollar and a quarter an hour. And that's what you got a dollar and a quarter an hour. You couldn't keep the tips. But I, I I would do that. And then afterward, I didn't want to go back to this little room and go to sleep. So I went to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. And there was a place called MFKs. And all the stars and all the people and everybody from Mickey Cone to Jerry Lewis's father was hanging out in front of the place. And they had a wonderful fountain and a great hamburger. And then there was a restaurant place. and and, I mean, everybody was there. Groucho Marx would be sitting at a table with a bunch of people and this thing. And I used to go there just to hang out. And the only two people that would be sitting at the counter Everybody else was sitting at the tables talking. I didn't have anybody to talk to, really. But the only two people would be Marlon Brando and me. He would sit down at the end in a gray sweatshirt and gray khakis, reading the New York Times, and you could just tell that he was quietly with his back towards all the people. Nobody ever bothered him. The only person that had any contact with him was... He'd see me and he'd say, hey, I'd say, how you doing? Hey, and how you doing? And that was the extent, and I would have a hamburger, and thank God, because by that time I was so hungry. And I'd see all these people, and one night this girl walks in, and she was just flying through the place with about six people with her, and she was wearing black Toreador, tight-fitting pants, with black high heels and she was just hot and I, and she had a marvelous laugh and i think Suzanne Pleshette was with her and some other people and i just looked at her and boy i got stuck on her the way i did when i was 9 years old and i went to the state theater in austin and for and when i saw linda darnell in a peasant blouse mm-hmm and I think it was in The Mark of Zorro or something, and when I saw those cheekbones and those big dark eyes and that face, I fell in love, and every girl that I ever went after in my life, if it looked anywhere near Linda Darnell, that's what I went after. But this girl walked in, and I never forgot her. Okay, dissolve. A year goes by, some guy from Chicago comes out here who's sort of working with Sammy Davis Jr. as his assistant or whatever you'd want to call him. Now I moved to an apartment on Hayworth with some guy named Leo who was from New York and he was in the garment business and then he became an agent. One night this guy, Dave, from Chicago who was working for Sammy and he knew Jerry and all that, he was he was sharp. He was slick. He was just it was probably the same age as me, but you could tell that he knew stuff that I wasn't hip to yet, you know. And he said to me one night, because I was starting to feel, it was a couple of years already had gone by, nothing was happening, I had tried a couple of fast art jobs and taken out my portfolio, but after about two or three days of working in, in the back room of some little agency or something, I'd go to lunch and not go back. I don't want, I want to do it. He said to me, come on, Jerry give me his box seats tonight for the Dodger game. Let's go to the Dodger. I'll, come on, let's go to the Dodger game. I said, okay. I put on a sport jacket and, and we're going to the Dodger game and he drives up Sunset Boulevard, he takes a right and goes up the hill. I said, where are you going? He says, Jerry, it's four tickets. Jerry asked me to pick up a couple of his friends. This is a lumpster. I said, I don't feel like being with any strangers. I was starting to get this great dream that I had dreamed walking out of the theater on the waterfront and everything. (coughs) I was parking cars. I was getting a few dollars. Once in a while, when my father didn't know if I was even eating, he'd send me some money and help me out. I had a great father and he really loved me and vice versa. I just had to say that because I miss him so much lately because I'm getting to the age where I've outlived him and so the memories change. Mm-hmm. The memories don't really change but when you get to my age I, I learned something. the The young boy comes back and that's what you want to be again. You remember every single feeling and thing of that football with the ends worn off from kicking a leather football and drop kicking it on the street. I mean, you, you begin to relive sitting on the stoop in front of the apartment feeling the little pebbles on the, in the cement. The feelings, it almost brings back people you love and you almost make them alive again in your life because your quest to mount to something has come and, in a way, pretty much gone. The miracle happened for me. Anyway, anyway, I got off the track. I said, I don't feel like being with anybody tonight, especially with a broad, in front of 40,000 people, take, take me back, you take the two friends of Jerry. He says, come on. You know, he didn't have a problem with mood swings and depression. I was already, it was beginning it would always been there, but when you're alone and you haven't amounted to much in a couple of years and you were sort of used to knowing your neighborhood, but now you're not quite sure if you're ever going to know this neighborhood. So he blows the horn at this beautiful little white house with a white picket fence. I said, who lives here? He says, Jerry's friend, who we're taking to the game. Just, you know, don't worry about it. You don't have to do anything. So I hear him coming down the stairs and I hear... It's two girls, and they're laughing. And I'm pissed, so I lean—I got a chip on my shoulder from everything, from not becoming a movie star to the day that I drove in, or whatever I thought I was supposed to be. And I pulled the seat back. It was kind of you pull back so you can get into the back seat. And they sit down in the back seat. I don't even turn around and say anything to them. I reached in my pocket, and then I was smoking cool filter tips. And I pull one out and I light one up and a voice in the back seat said, Oh, he even smokes my brand. And I turn around and it's this girl that I had seen so before in the drugstore that I was just mesmerized by when that minute I saw her. And here she was, sitting right there in the back seat. The next night we went to the game again. The, thir- the third night, Bobby Darren was having his first concert on the Strip at the Moulin Rouge up there, and we went there together. And I just looked across, and it was all by invitation of all the kids. And I was invited because now I knew her. She and Suzanne Flechette were doing all the television that was on the, the networks. Her name was Madeline Rue. After being together for a year and a half, she put my stuff out on the front porch one night and it drove me crazy for a couple of years. I don't know the reason why she did it. So I suffered through those two years and now the time was adding up out here and I wasn't accomplishing a, a damn thing. But one day playing baseball with a bunch of guys, there was an actors' league that agents played in and stuff like that. James Garner, Guy McIlwain, Jack Gillardi, Norm Walton. all these guys played. And since I was hanging around and I was getting to know people, and I, even though I, I thought I was a down-and-outer, I still—I was still making friends and acquaintances. A girl from Chicago saw me. She was in the stands, Barbara Luna, a successful actress, and she said, "Oh my goodness, what's Sandy Devore doing out there?" And Guy McElwain, who was a press agent at the time, but the people he represented, he was a young guy who had a gifted personality. He had the pers- he had the gift of everybody loving him. Judy Garland never made a decision without him. Natalie Wood never made a decision without him. Warren Beatty was his friend. Tony Bennett called him every day. He was one of these young guys who just had magic. He had a partner named Dave Gershenson, and they were the hottest two guys, young guys in the publicity business. And she said, and so McIlwain said, no, he's just an out-of-work actor think he's trying to do some acting. But, you know, he's, he's, he's played ball. And she says, he's a great artist. She says, no, you got, he says, you got the wrong guy. He's not an artist. I had been out here for four or five years and I hadn't told anybody that what I really did. So when I came in off the field, after the game, he said to me, Devor, are you an artist? I said, I used to be, but I'm not an artist anymore. I mean, I was, really, I was really down and out emotionally. He says, well, if you're any good, he says, we take out ads all the time for our clients. He was in his obituary. They even mentioned, he died a few years back. They even said he had the greatest gift for knowing talent. He could just sense it, smell it. I miss him. Because he was one of the first people who took an interest and did something and, and sent something. But he taught me a great le- some great lessons. He was immaculate. He had a habit of pulling his cuffs and his cufflinks down so they were exactly outside of his jacket at the exact same length and if one of them was uneven, it was made even. I mean he was was just sharp but he had a good heart as well. So I needed some money. I was broke and I wanted to get out of here, I was going to go to Oregon. I had traded in my 57 Chevy for a little black Austin Healey because I wanted a little black sports car. And after she kicked me out, this mandolin, I opened it up on the freeway, it was so wild I blew a coil and I left it there. I don't even remember what happened to it. So I called up his office and he asked me, we've got to do an ad for Judy Garland, if you can do night, an ad. There was a hundred dollars in it. I hadn't seen a hundred dollars in one place ever. You know, I mean a hundred dollars. And that would get me the gas money to go up to Oregon and I could maybe get a job with the Department of Fish and Game. Because I was a good fisherman and I down in college I used to go through the cornfields hunting hunting pheasant, taking it back to the house and treating the guys to a pheasant. I, I don't know where I got into that. It was Jewish kids from Chicago who don't own guns and go out duck and rabbit and pheasant shooting. But I did it for some reason, figured, well, if I'm good in the outdoors, I'll go up to Oregon maybe I'll get a job at the Department of Fish and Game or something. So I called him he says, yeah, we're doing that for Judy Garland, you want to take a crack at it? And I did Garland. And it was a back page, they had reserved it, a variety. Judy Garland was so big, there was nobody bigger than Judy Garland. Even to, I mean to me, I mean Judy Garland was when you wish upon a star and a dream is your, a wish your heart makes. But her, I wanted to make her name big. But I couldn't put it across the top because I couldn't make it big enough. So I turned it sideways and made it big up the side. Which to me would, made perfect sense. Put the ad together and brought it in. Well they thought that putting that lettering so big sideways up the side of the ad was such a idea. They'd never seen anybody do anything like that. I mean it was the first time I, I did something that I wanted to do my way, and it didn't get broken up and put in the garbage can, but everybody got nuts. And so it ran on the back page, and McElwain got a call from the agent and the powerhouse guy who was really the heavyweight in the business during those years, and his name was Freddie Fields, and he ran with David Beagleman, who was his partner, but more on the law side. They ran. C, CMA, Creative Management Associates. He called McElwain and said, "Who did that ad for Judy?" He represented Judy, I guess, or wanted to. And McElwain said, "Some guy I was playing baseball with, and and we've been, and we've known him, but we didn't know that he was blah blah blah, blah blah blah, and he needed some money, so he did the ad." He says, "Send him over to Warren Cowan." Rogers, Collin, mm-hmm. and Brenner. Send him over because Warren Collin wants to meet him. So I put on my boots, my thing, and I went over and I. and I, But he said, but I want to meet him first. Freddie Fields said, send him over to me. I want a meeting him with him and make it a legit meeting. I didn't know who Freddie Fields was, but I went over to 9255, went up to, I think it was the 11th floor and I went into his office. First time I ever saw a guy in in glasses that were darker at the top and shaded.
0: Mm-hmm. Progressives.
1: Progressive shading down, because then all glasses looked the same. They had rims, and most of them were just metal frames. But this guy had glasses, and a thin mustache, and he had a desk that looked like it cost $10,000. It was beautiful. And you remember when the drapes of the late, of the early 60s were long folded maroon velour Mm -hmm. drapes. They were elegant. And he was sitting there. And I had on a corduroy fit coat that I bought. I didn't even have a shirt on underneath. I like just wearing this corduroy jacket and my cowboy boots and a pair of jeans. And I sat there and he said, Kid, here's what I would like to do if you would like to do it. I represent everybody in the business who's huge. Anybody who's big. Tony Curtis, Steve McQueen, Judy Garland. Anybody, everybody. I represent everybody. Rock Hudson. He said, and here's what I'm suggesting. I'm going to buy you the back page of Variety Reporter for a year. They each get the same ad on different days because you got to play. this political. You can't give an ad to one and not to the other because of the reviewers. And he says, and then their press agents, their publicists, whether it be Warren Cowan or Jim Mahoney or whoever represents them publicity-wise, will give you some copy on what the pictures in preparation, what Henry Fonda just finished, what Henry Fonda is going to do, and it will be delivered to you wherever you're doing your artwork. You do the ad, you do what you want to do. You don't have to show it to me. I'll see it the next day on the back page, and send me a bill for whatever it is. Would you like to do that? And the heavens had parted. In. I said yes. I'd like. I'd. I'd like to do that. Yes. I knew that he meant exactly what he said, so I didn't say, "Well, is it all right if I do this?" Mm-hmm. And that? in other words. I recognized that as my first legitimate, real life, no bullshit break in my life.
0: I mean, that's a huge break.
1: I huge, guess. huge.
0: What an opportunity. So how, so how many illustrations would that be over a whole year?
1: Well, it was, I didn't do just illustrations. I, See, or how many what like I, did, what I decided back. to do was, I decided to put on an art show for the entire industry and for my father and for my people in Chicago but more for... I decided that I would do exactly what my heart told me to do and my gut and there would be nothing political involved in my decision making I was going to do whatever came to my mind if I loved somebody and I wanted to draw them, I drew them. If I respected somebody because of something I knew about them, I would design an ad that had a boldness and a strength to it. If somebody made a picture like Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice, I would do schmooze and cartoons because it was a spoof, the first spoof on open sensualism. And if somebody was really a movie star, like Tony Curtis, I would sit there and draw them, and show that they deserved what it took and the time it took. I mean, nobody knew that I could do one of those in two hours. Faye Dunaway, when she did Bonnie and Clyde. But other times, when it was fun, and it was Dean Martin, I made it into a whiskey bottle and put them in a shot glass.
0: So you use basically every possible different
2: technique?
1: Yes. By 68, they had called me in to start doing artwork for television. But up until that time, I had gotten my name in the industry through the people seeing...
0: Because I noticed on some of the posters that your name is on them, like on the the back pages that...
1: My name was on everything. Guys who were doing trade ads Mm -hmm. up until that time, didn't sign their names because most of the ads were just photographs with a line of type on them. What's the sign? You know. Yeah. I made the deal with Freddie, and then I got the call from Warren Cowan, who was the top public relations man in town. It was Rogers and Cowan. And he asked me if I could draw Sammy Davis Jr. And I was so struck by this new thing that had happened to me when I was getting ready to try to drive out of town to go find a job because I was beat. I did that drawing of Sammy Davis Jr. I waited till the last night it was due. I great procrastination. Maybe because I don't want to do anything until I have to do it. And then when I have to do it, it seems to turn out really good. It's almost like doing combat with some sort of an invisible demon. I'm not trying to get artsy, but I really don't know what being an artist is all about. I just know there's only one thing that I've always sort of been able to do. But it worked. People liked it. So I did the drawing of Sammy Davis Jr. And then I got a telegram that day after it came out, inviting me to the opening at the Ambassador Hotel, which was what the ad was for. And when I went there, I saw my name on a long table right next to the stage, which was the Distinguished Guest Table. You know, from being ready to head to Oregon to work for the Department of Fish and Game to the Distinguished Guest Table. I mean, God bless America. It was a wonderful evening, and Sammy comes out, And everybody in the business is there. It's the Coconut Grove, it's the opening night of the reopening. Everybody was there. Every major producer, every major studio head, every major actor, actress, everybody was there. And Sammy comes out and before he starts, he introduces every great once in a while, nature sends somebody new with great gifts into our industry. And he looks down at me and he had it rigged so that the spot hit me. Holy shit. That started it all. And so from then on it was one after another, one after another. Then McIlwain came to me and said, Would you do one for me? He got me started, really. Then three, four years go by and I'm doing all these ads, you see? And I was having fun.
0: So every day they would just send you, this is the information, we need this for the next day?
1: So I did different things for everybody. And sometimes I just wanted to play a game of hiding my name. So there's some producers who maybe thought I was getting, I was expensive. Because my first job in television was when I got a call from Columbia Pictures Television Because Police Story was a new show going on the air and a fellow named Larry Larry Werner, who was the head of production, post-production, called me and said, we forgot to do an opening title for the show. We can't put the new show on the air with 20 seconds of of, of black. We forgot. Can you help us? Can you do anything? And so I got some stuff together and I worked. from about 8 till 11 that night. And I did that thing, The Blue Cop, mm-hmm. you know, the, the blue thing for Police Story. I gave it to him and they put it on and it lasted for the whole run of, of that series, that same piece of art. And when I went in to see him the next time, he says, you may be a wonderful artist and all those nice things. He says, but you're the world's worst businessman. He was being like an uncle. He was being like a, an older guy who was, who was, c- going to tell me a secret, and but when he said, "But you're the world's worst businessman," I realized what he was saying was, you had, Columbia Pictures over a barrel, with a show going on the air for millions of people without an opening, and you did it last minute, like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, and you charged five hundred dollars for it. You had Columbia Pictures over a barrel. What he was suggesting was, I could have easily asked for $5,000 for that, and they would have been happy to give it to me. So he taught me a lesson, and from then on, I started to charge more intelligently, but I can understand why I did what I did. $500 for three hours' work was unheard of, but that straightened me up. And then I adjusted my prices. So then what I would do, then when I did these ads, sometimes I would go completely different from a, 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 a tight illustration to something like the marketing or, or, or cartoons or something. And I would hide my name someplace so that they would say, oh great, there's somebody else now that ads are being done. There's somebody new in town. We don't have to pay DeVore all that money. Oh, there's his name. Turn it upside down. You <laughs> see, inside the shoe, inside the lace of the shoe, there's that little divorce. And I really had started having a really good time. I had the opportunity to put on a show for the most gifted, talented people, the most interesting people in the world that the whole world looked to for their entertainment and so forth. And play my own game, and so that's why I didn't take any one specialty, like the illustrations and stuff like that, where people say, "Oh, did you draw that by hand or did you draw? How did you draw that? Because I know it's a fickle town, and if I kept doing the same thing that they'd get tired of it. He says, "Yeah, oh, okay, one trick pony. Everything I did from a partnership being two broken eggs and half to a drawing of Arthur Penn, because he was a good director to strong images of Lee Marvin. Because when I was trying to figure out what to do for Lee Marvin, I thought to myself, Lee Marvin's a big star. And he's been represented by a man who was in my building, who was always so nice and kind and polite to me. Meyer Mishkin, who discovered a lot of people. He discovered the actor who was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Who's that? um, Richard
0: Dreyfuss?
1: Richard Dreyfuss, and so forth. Lee Marvin was with Mr. Mishkin, and even when he got pitched to go to CAA, or ICM, or William Morris, he never left Mr. Mishkin. Even with the promises of, we can get you ten million billion more a picture. Fire him, you know. Mm -hmm. And so everything I did for Lee Marvin, I tried to make it look strong because I respected his loyalty to Mr. Mishkin. Mr. Mishkin was five foot tall and was known by everybody. So people left and people went on for bigger deals and people left. other people went to different agencies when they got promised that they could get a, a deal for three pictures of $20 million. and so. But Lee Marvin didn't do that. Those were the kind of feelings. That generated what I did. And so since every person was different, and there were a couple of people I didn't like at all, who when I went in to meet them, their behavior was less than was less than. Mm-hmm. And I had no feeling to rack my brain for them. Sometimes Freddie Fields say, Listen, we just signed Erwin Allen. You gotta do him. I said, well I went into his office and not only did he keep me waiting while he was on a telephone, on a personal call that had nothing to do with business. I could hear right in his office. But he thought that the ad guy, the title guy was just nothing more than a below the line person and didn't require any special treatment. And I remember just getting up and walking out of his office because of my loyalty to Freddie, I didn't want to leave him hung because I found out, long after I started all this, that I was part of making the deal to sign new people, including Kirk Douglas and others who were told, you sign with me, you're going to get a couple of announcement ads of the representation done by Sandy DeVore. Why would I ever think that I I could never imagine until I was told by somebody you were part of the deal. I couldn't imagine that. I couldn't imagine that today. But there were some people, not everything is perfect, that treated you, that weren't nice. Mm-hmm. But that was very rare. Maybe it happened two, two or three times. When you look at that drawing of Tony Curtis, they can make all the jokes about when he had a New York accent, but was playing in an Arabian Nights picture and so forth, but the fact remains, Tony Curtis was a legitimate movie star, mm-hmm. a real movie star. And so, when I made the announcement, he was represented by CMA. I made him look like a real movie star, I think. When I walked into Jimmy Stewart's house, because he wanted, they all wanted to meet me before. I did my thing, which was nice. I knocked on his door to meet with him to do him for the cover of the annual where you thank the industry just for being part of your life. He greeted me at the door with a sport jacket, a tie, and a white shirt. And then I got heavy into doing the main titles. And and those were big projects. But wonderful things happened. Like there was a company called American International Pictures, and it was run by two men, Jim Nicholson and Sam Arkoff, and they did all their pictures during a time when there was no money floating around the business, like the millions and billions that are, are floating around today. They were making pictures for $250,000, like five easy pieces, and the Peter Fonda Nicholson picture, the motorcycle. Easy Rider and all those, but and then they made a, a then they made exploitation pictures. They made a picture called Black the first black vampire picture. I remember I did an ad for AIP called Three in the Attic, where uh, it was it was about three college girls that got uh, Christopher Jones up in a, in an attic and they abuse they joyfully abused him for a week on end. He never really showed anything but it was, and they asked me to do the opening for that, or to do an ad saying, announcing the picture. So I created the, the logo. I created the ad for them but I did the logo. So they'd have a logo of the Capitol building in a round circle mm-hmm. and so forth, AIP. I, I must have charged them $125 or something like that for the ad. And then I ended up seeing the logo on the opening of every one of their movies. So probably, I've see, I see it now because Sony has bought up all their products and stuff like that and so it comes on big. I did the same thing for Dick Clark when he announced opening a production office. And somebody called me and asked if I would do an ad for the opening of the Dick Clark production office on Sunset Boulevard. Well, a guy like Dick Clark can't open an office without a logo, so I put a logo on the ad. So there's another logo for a major company that they got for $125 or $150. But I didn't care. I wasn't thinking that way. And then years later, somebody said, oh, you you did the logo for Dick Clark. I said, yeah. and When he got divorced, years later, from his wife, and and they were in court, they were trying to settle on the ownership of community property. Well, his logo was part of what he had, and his wife, who he was divorcing, supposedly, I was told, said that he could keep that logo for a million dollars. So what they did was they took the C out from inside the D and put it next to the D, which changed it enough technically so it wasn't the same logo anymore. But they got that logo for... You know what I'm saying. I mean, this was crazy and fun, but it was like that Young and Restless logo that's above your head, that Y&R. I was doing all the drawings of the Y&R people that came on before the show. Now they use photographs. But I was doing the drawing. Since I was doing the drawings, and I was going to photograph the drawings and made the new logo in 1983, the new opening, I said, you know, the candle flickering and the curtain blowing and the two beds instead of one bed, it's enough of all that. You gotta change the look of daytime television. So I was sitting with the head of broadcasting for CBS in her office, Jeannie Reagan. And I liked her a lot. She was just a good lady. And there was a pad of paper there, and I had a marker like this in my pocket. I says, You gotta change television, Jeannie. The same stuff. I mean, I gotta do a new logo for the Young and Restless, I gotta do a logo. So I took out this pad of paper that was on her desk with blue lines, and it it was school book paper. Remember the lines, Mm -hmm. blue lines? And I took one of these markers and I did She says, that's it, that's the new logo. That's it. Do it. So I sent, I tore it off the pad, and if you photographed at a camera house, at a graphics house, anything with a blue line the blue line didn't print. Okay. The blue line didn't photograph. It was like the scrim they use. So I got the y without the blue school paper lines in it. And the next day, the Solo Cup Man that I designed the red Solo Cup for, had opened up a videotape operation on Lancashire to shoot shows and do videotape shows for his wife, who was also probably in her early 80s at the time, but he wanted to sh- get let her do shows and sing and dance. He was like the Carnegies. He was one of those guys who made it in his garage and became a, a multi-millionaire when, um, when a million was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I went to his place to shoot it to shoot the new opening sequence for The Young and Restless. Well, I did it, and I animated, I had them animate that Y and R, and I stuck my name very small in the bottom of the R, so nobody could see it, but I wanted it on there, and I shot it, and they put it on the air, the next day, just an hour before they put it on there, they said, what's what's this new thing? Where'd this new thing come from? I said, well, you need a new logo. The producer says, yeah, but... We didn't say anything about a new logo. I said, if if you would have said something, I would have asked if I would have told you it would have been a a conference, you would have discussed it. I mean, you don't have to discuss it. Just use it and go. And by that time, I mean, it was winging. You know, if they kicked me off, so they would kick me off. But I felt by this time, so many years had gone by, I really knew better than them what they needed we had an agreement that my name would go on the credits. But then the creator of The Young and the Restless, or somebody, the creator, my name was taken off of the credits. And in recent years, my name, I still get fan mail. People still track me down. I got a whole folder of people who remember the logo and love it, and they track down the name on the internet now who did it and they send mail. People call, actually call. And they still use it. I think it's the longest lasting logo on daytime television, or maybe on on any kind of television. Nighttime, primetime too. They still use it at the very beginning of the show. Big red, full size of the screen. But I never dreamed that sitting in his uh, house up past Westwood one day just talking about he was the only commercial client that I was on retainer to the solo cup company. so he opened this videotape oper- operation called Primore up in the valley so I was there shooting, putting this thing on tape and uh, we went back to his house and we got into a discussion I said, you know. Dixie Cup, all the cups in all the places except for the 4th of July are white. Why don't you put some color? He says, you want to put color on it, just pick out the colors you want to put on them and call Chicago and tell them to make the cups in these colors. Go ahead. That's the way he taught. He was in his 80s, but still playing. Rich Man's Polo at Will Rogers State Park. The reason I was at his house is because he had busted or fractured an ankle and he couldn't meet me down at, at the place. So I went out to the house because his foot was propped up. He had just sold me his first from Germany 450 SLC, Mercedes Benz, because I had a brown one from 67 and I loved it so much. And he bought a Mercedes-Benz, but it was that 450, one, one that looks like if we went down Malibu Highway, you, you, you would actually take off into the sky, it was like a... And he calls me up and he says, well, I bought this car. He says, and we were driving down Sunset Boulevard and a bunch of these young girlies pulled up next to me and said, hey, you're looking pretty, pretty cute, man. You're looking pretty cute in that great car." His wife had given up being in the follies, Minsky's follies, Mm -hmm. when she was a young girl, to marry him and devote her life to him. And so now, at the end of their life, he would go into his own pocket, take out a couple million dollars, hire the best directors, and let her do her singing and dancing on Channel Eleven on videotape shows with full orchestras and everything. And his name was Halsman, Leo Holsman. He owned the, comp- the solo cup company. He had walked into my office 70- years before and said people told him the best artist in town was me and he wanted to know if I would do some record labels for her songs that they would put on the boxes for kids. And I said, I'm doing pretty well, sir. I says, and I appreciate you coming to me. But I really don't want to do small things that take up a lot of time because I'm very busy. He says, "Well, what if I put you? What if you do other things for me? I, I put you on like a retainer." It was raining; he was fluid dripping. Well, he had a rain hat over the old-fashioned hat and everything. I said, "Well, retainer." I said, "That means you know, if there's no work, you got to pay me too." He says, "Yeah, yeah, I know what it means." And so he says, "Well." How much would you want to do that? Maybe you could do some other things for me too, because I live six months out here and six months in Chicago. I liked him. I says, well, I guess 17.5, because this was in the this was still when a thousand dollars, a hundred dollars. It was a lot of money. It wasn't like today. Where they're throwing around figures and you don't know where it's coming from. Or how people are getting it. So he says, 17.5. And he spotted immediately some young guy who didn't have the wherewithal to actually ask for $20,000. So he says, 17.5, there's a couple of zeros, and then there's a five and there's a seven. He said, that's complicated. Why don't you just make it an even 25,000 and I'll get back to you with what I need. And you just start building the company in Chicago. And for a lot of years, even though I was connected with high profile things like winning Emmys for the Carol Burnett Special and stuff like that, there were years where I had one or two projects and if and one or two projects, if they became well known, like a scag with Carl Maul and stuff like that, I was still only making less than a plumber because you couldn't really get more than $20 or $25,000 for doing the opening for a TV series, you know, even though at that time it was considered top of the line. So, there were plenty of months where that $2,000 for designing cups, just picking out the colors of cups and stuff like that and doing little album covers for Doral Hall was her stage name, and I mean, here's a man who went into his, his pocket, hired the best people, and laid out two, three million dollars for his show in cash. Must have cost him. And now the Red Solo Cup is more famous than the Young and Restless logo. <laughs> now Who figured that a cup that guys drink beer out of on every show and tailgate and football game where they show eating chicken and ribs. I mean. The Red Solo Cup, they even wrote a song about it. My favorite person that I ever knew in the entertainment business was who I had genuine affection for, genuine affection for, was Otto Preminger. I loved Otto Preminger. He had all of his work done by a man, a great designer called, named Saul Bass, man with the golden arm, the cardinal, all those things with Saul Bass. But he had a fight with Saul Bass when he was doing a movie. And he got wind of my name through the trades and I was making a name for myself. and I got a call in, must have been 68 or 69 or so, and to come in. He wanted a meeting. I went to Paramount and I met him. He asked me if I wanted to do the titles on this new picture he had made, Skidoo, with everybody in it but the kitchen sink. Groucho Marx and Jackie Gleason, Harry Nilsson doing the music. We did the, the titles of music and the opening title was Skidoo, which was from the 20s. So I had to do the Charleston, so he could photograph it with his $35 little Kodak camera. And I'll never forget the day I said to him, because he, he he demanded that his my office be right next to his. I don't know why I'd, I had not known him before, but I, so for the three or four months I was on the movie, he wanted me to come to the studio each day at MGM. And then I would break away and go to my studio at 9255, but he wanted me on the picture. When the picture was over and we had spent all these months together, we had one more big meeting with the guys at the title house to do some special effects of dancing, garbage cans and stuff like that. The movie was just panned. Now it's a cult classic. The actual review said, Skidoo, great film if you wait for the titles. I felt so bad because I adored him. He was was so great because he was known as an authoritarian. He used to kick Frank Sinatra off the set. He was known as a tyrant and screaming and yelling. And the truth of the matter was that was all a performance. And after he would do it to somebody on the set or raise hell and everything, he'd stick his nose, he'd stick his head into my office and he would say, Divor, was that a good preventure? Do you think that they bought that? (laughs) And he says, I don't know. It was great. And then one day I was so proud this was one of my proudest moments. He came to me and he said, we would known each other now for a couple of months. And my, I was really cooking. And I wasn't doing any of this with, oh, I wonder if a, uh, I mean, I really felt like I was contributing. and I knew the business and uh, I was creating stuff that was really working. And now I was sitting here working and advising a man, when I saw his name on, come on the screen when I was ten and eleven years old going, going to the theater and pictures like Laura and stuff were coming on, and I saw Otto Preminger Presents, I knew even as a kid something special was coming. And here I was working side by side, and ha- having lunch in the commissary every day together but at the end I got tired. I would already done the titles, I had already done everything. We had one more meeting with six guys from Pacific Title, which was the production house that actually did the opticals on all my ideas. And the man who was the animator there, was one of the great animators of all time during the, the original Bambi days and everything, that was Chuck McKimson. He's the one who actually did the measure the animation and everything. He was one of those great animators who could flip the pages and I mean, and I worked with him on just about everything. I would do the storyboards and the idea and everything, but Chuck McKimson was a big part of my career. When he died, it was like part of my passion for the industry died. Now they can time a dissolve on a computer we time to dissolve from one seed to the other. He says, how long do you want to take for this to happen? And I would go with a with his, uh, pencil, I would go in with a pencil on the desk. And it never came out wrong. So anyway, I was sitting in the office. My office had a great big open window. It was beautiful out. I was sitting in the window. Those old buildings had windows you could actually sit in. They were so big. The deco mm-hmm. windows. A gorgeous redhead with her portfolio comes walking out from one of the sound stages towards the parking lot. And she walked right near me. She was beautiful. And I had, was bored already sitting there because the job was really over. But Reverend didn't want me to go home yet, you know. He kept finding things for me to do. And so I said to the girl, you want to get out of here? I'd look. And I escaped from the studio with that girl. At the time, I was living in a one-bedroom in this building, in a different building. So we came back here, and I got a phone call at 5 o'clock in the afternoon from Nat Rudick, his assistant to, the, to Preminger. Where are you? There's six guys been waiting here for the meeting with you and Preminger is beat red. Where is Divor? Where is Devor? I totally forgot about everything because I was enjoying my afternoon with this beautiful, beautiful girl. I raced back to the studio, dropped her in her car. I raced into his office and he was red is there was stuff coming out of his mouth. He was so, he he was looking like the preminger of the newspapers that always claimed he was. He was ready to sinatra so me. He was ready to kick me out. He was, where were you? I would not, just that, pre, you have to, people are waiting for you. What are you doing? What have you turned into? I says, I don't stop. You paid me half of what our deal was at the beginning. You're right. It was totally unprofessional what I did today. I totally forgot you. I totally forgot the picture. I totally forgot the yelling and the screaming. I said, I was sitting here at 12 o'clock this afternoon. I saw the most beautiful girl that I've seen. And I can't remember. She smiled at me and we went home and I didn't think about you or the meeting or remember it until Rudik called me. You're entirely right. I'm entirely wrong. You don't have to pay me for what you owe me. If that would satisfy the situation, I'm sorry. I just forgot. And he looks at me, and then he asks me the question of what we didn't in that I think this afternoon when I was missing. And I told him what we did repeatedly. And he walks up to me, and he's he that far, he's nose to nose with me, puts his arms around me, and he hugs me to him, himself, and he said Divor this is the only explanation that Preminger would happily accept. <laughs> now let us go talk to these guys and get rid of them and he puts his arm around me and we walked in and had the meeting. This is the only excu- this is the only excuse or answer that Preminger would accept the fact that I it all speaks for itself I've had such a wonderful time I was nominated for an Emmy and congratulated by Columbia on the back page of the trades I was nominated for the Emmy for the titles and the logo for The Young and the Restless Mm -hmm. but they had the meeting for Daytime Television Awards in New York and when my assistant called to find out what The result was, they said, well, Devore won, but we decided not to give us out a statue because he had no competition. I'll never forget that. That's something I'll never forget. I don't care because, to be honest, it was daytime. And I got my kicks out of doing the drawings and seeing the drawings on daytime. And then, in 87, when I was called and asked by a very nice man who was producing the Carol Burnett special starring Carol Burnett, Carl Reiner, Whoopi Goldberg, and Robin Williams, I had fallen out of the mood of doing any more. I had been at it a long time. And I didn't feel like doing it. I just didn't feel like doing it. But they sent over... the some people to try to talk me into it. Somebody there was determined that I do it. And so I got, I, I said, OK. And that's where I got the idea to put a all in whiteface except for their eyes, nose, and mouth. Kabuki makeup. Not do it optically and take out the thing, but just have their noses and eyes and mouth of all the different the different stars doing something, just photographing them on motion picture, film in black and white, and then have them do something shticky, whatever they wanted to do. And they all sat for two hours and individually got made up with kabuki makeup, white. I didn't want to do it the optical way and cheap. I won the Emmy for that one, the 86, 87. Emmy. That's over there next to the two tickets for invitation, which I didn't go to because I was probably I don't to this day, I don't think I'm wrong, but somebody thinking practically and politically would say I'm wrong. But they when I when I won the Emmy The people at the TV Academy said that Emmy isn't being awarded on the night where the Emmys are being televised because that's on a different night when the technical awards are given. Well, I looked through my books and I looked at all this stuff and I thought to myself, I did not invent a piece of tape that splices a machine or a liquid that you put on a lens. I don't think of these things and ideas as technical awards as opposed to not being, not being, I figured that they were as creative as anything else Mm -hmm. that Emmys would ever be given. You know, it wasn't a new kind of a screw or a machine, although those things probably are wonderful, but I didn't figure myself as being the recipient of a technical award that didn't deserve, that wasn't in a category to be with an actor or a writer or anything else. So I got it, but it, I didn't feel like going and sitting there. Then it start, and then pretty soon after 87, 88, I got a telephone call from a printer who I used to give my work to to do my stationery and stuff like that. And he said, Well, uh, are you going to buy the new machines and hire new people? I said, What kind of machines and why would I hire new people? I had people that were that helped me. I mean for a year I got into the women's clothing business at Bullock's and I knocked them dead with designing clothes and putting some of my artwork on clothes and it was written up in the times and I did that for a year. It was very successful. And then I got a call from uh, Carsey Werner. Tom Werner was a big You still see his name on the end of so many different things, and he owned the San Diego Padres for a while. He called me up, and I just didn't want to do any more titles. Something inside of me had changed, and he came to my office, told me he had seen something called Morning Star, Evening Star about an old folks home that took in young orphans and they made a series out of it and he thought the titles were great. And I think that he was the executive producer of the um, Carol Burnett thing. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I'd call him after he won the Emmy and just say, hey, by the way, I, I won an Emmy for your show. And he never called me back. And I remember sitting in this beautiful studio, half apartment and half art studio, at 9255 Sunset Boulevard. And I got the call from the printer, Jerry Jerry Allen, and he said, are you going to buy the new machines? He says, because this new computer thing, he says, forget about rubber cement and uh, spray fix. This is all going to be done on machines from now on. No more going," he says, no more going down to the reporter in Variety at three in the morning and having the guys measure the inflow just perfect on the Sinatra head. and all that was being shut down. He says because this thing and I remember his last words because this thing ain't going away. Now I sat there for a year looking out the window. Watching them finish off building Century City to replace the back lot where they shot all the exteriors, western towns, hometowns, out of 20th. I could see it from my office. That picture I showed you of my billboard mm-hmm. that I designed for <coughs> lipstick, you could see that, and behind it, you could see all the way to the ocean. There was no Century City. And I just sat there looking out the window, 87, 88, 89. And I had a friend who I'd made some years before, Linda. Some lady who wanted, who came to sell me something, wanted to fix me up with her girlfriend. The girlfriend came over. This Linda. I would rather be her friend. She she was. A good person I liked her. And she said to me one day, she said, You're gonna sit here and they're gonna and you're gonna spend everything that you got saved up sitting here because with these new machines because in the late seventies, after the big party of the seventies, we were all a little whacked out. We had all really partied pretty good for eight or nine years. I sort of had a fight for my life to get my career back mm-hmm. rolling again, because everybody was in sort of turmoil, emotionally. It was like throwing a 10,000 pounds of ice on raw nerves. It was fun. It was a great party. I mean, there was nothing you could die from. Mm-hmm. AIDS had not, you know, gotten everybody f- frightened to wake up each day. Or do anything that you always pursued. That were the pleasures and rewards of America and Hollywood. You know? Now you're afraid of everything. And the party ended. So I had fought for my life and made a couple of good comebacks. And even after 81, when my father died, I had no one to show off for anymore and send every piece of art home where he would pin it up on the wall downstairs, but nobody ever told me. I was never supposed to know. The pins were on every trade ad in our recreation room down in our house. That's the way those people were. It was called dignified pride. You didn't talk about it, you just had it. I would have rather they talked about it, I could have used it. But this time, I didn't have the feeling to fight for my life. Because I didn't care about computers, and I didn't care about digital, and I didn't care about Photoshop, or somebody trying to make a photograph look like a drawing so they wouldn't have to hire somebody like me to actually draw it. I didn't care about any of that shit. It wasn't that I didn't care about it. My head didn't care about it. My heart didn't care about it. My kids that I had done before with a sharpened pencil and a sand pad and keeping at three o'clock in the morning up at the studio, making sure that every eyelight, that everything came to life and it was gone, it was over. What was I gonna do with a machine I didn't even know how to turn on? I couldn't pass algebra and I couldn't pass geometry. The only reason they passed me is there was no reason to hold me back. could take me t- I would have never passed it next time either. And all this shit was the same thing. That's it. And she said, i got to get you out of here or you'll be broke. So that little lady, Linda Saltzman is her name. We're still friends. We still talk all the time. We have dinner at Factors to eat deli food and kishki and gravy to keep it going the best we can. She brought up boxes and packed me up and I brought an entire studio back to a two bedroom apartment because the last thing I ever thought was going to happen I figured maybe somebody will come along and they'll just knock me off this little thing of people wanting me to do the back page for them. Somebody will be come up with something better some person but I never thought that a bunch that some guys with a machine from Silicon Valley was going to turn every art studio into a row of Windows 2 or Windows 8 I took all the show business artwork off the walls and in order not to let the, the loneliness of w- losing, that miracle of productivity and achievement and fun to something I never suspected, whoever thought that this was going to take over the world. I had a couple of major gallery exhibits like at the Paley in Beverly Hills, a huge exhibit. I took everything off the wall so all my walls had plaster holes in them. So I took the artwork that I just sat around and a couple of pieces from the American Academy where I learned how to do a, a little watercolor and my pen and ink, little drawings and mm-hmm. my sculpture, and a couple of pe- pieces and put this stuff up, including the first oil painting I ever did in 1953 of downtown Chicago that I did in the basement of my home. When I first started getting the idea, I wanted out. If you can see in the upper right hand corner, there's my handprint pushing my way outside of Chicago on a dark afternoon because it would get snowy and wet in the middle of w- winter at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And since 1992, so I've been filling up books every year of my thoughts.
0: So you, it's like your continuing
1: journal. Mm hmm. Picturing myself aging, talking about how I feel. And then I take music and I make art out of it. Anything that comes to mind that can keep me from being alone Mm-mm. and because an artist without something to do is a very painful thing. Yeah. I've taken the things in life I love, like women, mm-hmm. and I've included them in the things that I miss. But a lot happened in the 80s because when I lost my father, A lot happened. Like I said, I had no one to show off anymore. I was still a professional, and I wanted the people in this town, if I did anything or anybody ever saw anything again, I wanted them never to say, well, he used to be. I never wanted to be a used to be. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is is that every kid dreams that the spotlight will be thrown down. The The next time my father came out here, And Eddie Fisher was at the Coconut Grove, and by this time, I was already doing every, you know, when they threw the spotlight down on me and Eddie thanked me, my father was sitting right next to me. Years before, he had been worrying if I had had a meal, or if I was tough enough or sharp enough to know how to handle myself out here. I could handle myself on Rush Street, I knew the neighborhood. Mm But Hollywood's a different story. Hollywood's very tricky. And everybody is out here for one reason. The dream of becoming a star. That's something. So I got a lot to be grateful for. A lot to be grateful for. I've had it I've had it great, but that's yesterday's hamburger. That's about it. I've had some real nice, uh, the Paley exhibit, when I walked out of the elevator and walked in and they wouldn't let me see it. They put up everything. I have pictures of it but they put up everything but wanted me to walk in and see it fresh. When I walked in I couldn't believe somebody had done all that. I couldn't identify that it was my stuff. I've had some wonderful experiences but now I feel very sad that it's over because I can still do it, easily. But the world is changed and nobody wants And nobody needs it. Or nobody seems to need it from me. And that's sort of like the feeling I got that night on Road Street when I said, I got to get out of here because it ain't going to happen here. And I took that ride on Route 66. I don't want to get melodramatic, but it is melodramatic. Now I'm at the end period, what they think of it as the end period of life, and I don't know, I feel like I felt when I put my hand up there and put in white paint and said, it ain't going to happen here, I got to get out of here, I have to leave here, and I just, I'll just finish with this. Somebody said to me the other day, you did M.A.S.H.? You You worked on M.A.S.H.? I says, yeah. Zanuck and Brown didn't like it. They didn't think anybody was going to go see a war picture where there was no shooting or killing, but a bunch of doctors screwing around with each other. And so, they wanted a. They didn't like. They wanted to dump what was being done on the picture. Otto Preminger's brother Ingo came, got the job to produce it. He had only done, I don't even know if he had ever done another picture, maybe one. And they were telling him to dump everything because it was never going to go. And he was heartbroken. He wanted to get on a plane and go back to Europe where he came from. And Otto said to me, I want you to go over to 20th Century Fox. I want you to sit with my brother Ingo. I called him. I want you to take a look at the four hours of rough cut film he's put together. And I want you to tell him what he has got or what he doesn't have. And I thought, Otto Preminger is sending me, is trusting me. I went over there and I watched the four hours of cut the cut the cut the cut. There weren't even any dissolves yet or anything. No opticals. It was just the raw footage. And I told Lingo after three and a half or four hours, we were the only ones in the screening room. I said, You've got a great picture here. This is wonderful. As far as what the heads of the studio are telling you, I used the F word and I said, well, I, them. Mm-hmm. Just finish it. Don't, don't, don't. This is, one, this is great stuff. And so somebody said to me, sitting here the other night, while well, I was feeling sorry for myself one way or another, and told them that story, they said, well, do you realize that without that afternoon, there would have been no mesh. That's, that's part of it. And I don't go into my drawing room very much. I do most of my work out here because I use the, this and I, I fill up the, the books. Mm-hmm. But I don't go into the, that room very often. Because that's a work room and I'm not really working. Because if you're working, you should be. So I, you know, sometimes I go and talk to somebody just to have someone to talk to. Mm -hmm. A lot of people do that nowadays. I don't think it's a thing, there's probably still a stigma, but I don't have anybody. I was here for, I got what I came for and now that that time has passed, you know, I spent a lot of time alone. That's about it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so, so much.
0: Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Sandy DeVore. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few months with artists, writers, and designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter.
2: See you next week.